Thank you, Brother and Mrs. Bosler. Let's take our Bibles and go to Galatians chapter number 2, and we'll dismiss our children for the children's ministry, heading right back towards the back of the auditorium, and they'll be walking across to the Atha building, the next uh, old auditorium beside us. And the children can be picked up there at the conclusion of the service. And if you need help, direction, getting there, any one of the ushers would be glad to help. Galatians chapter number 2, we've been in a series going in uh, through Galatians and looking at this matter of discovering freedom, how to find freedom in Christ. And we are at Galatians chapter number 2, and we're going to look again at verse number 20. In fact, we're going to be in chapter 2 and verse 20, this verse, for a period of time. So I'm not going to hurry through this. At times, I'm going to give you the, uh, a bite, and we're going to work through that. And we're going to digest it and we're going to add to it. And then we're going to look at a bird's eye view of it. And then we're going to come back at it and take some bites. And it's, in, it's very imperative, I believe, essential that we get this before we get to chapter 3. And because of the fact that I believe that this is so crucial and so key, as I mentioned, it came to my mind in the prayer at the opening of the service, that the devil does delight according to 2 Corinthians he delights in corrupting the simplicity that is in Christ. And so we can miss something because of how simple it might be. We miss it because of the familiarity of the terms, the words. We can miss it because we just miss it. And we don't want to dig down, get into it. And I believe that the devil would like for us to stay confused about something that is essential to finding freedom. So if we could please, out of respect for the Bible, let's stand and we'll look at Galatians 2 and verse 20, this one verse. I'll say the reference and you could say the verse with me out loud. That looks a little dark up there. Can you see? There we go. Um, let's say the verse, Galatians 2 verse 20, let's say it together. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Thank you. Please be seated. This is a verse that I memorized during my college days. I guess it would be fair to say I've been mulling it over for nearly 30 years. And I think it summarizes my philosophy of the Christian life maybe better than any other verse I know. There are other passages that would be synonymous to this. Why is this verse so important to me? I believe it's because it gets down to the heart of the most essential matters of the Christian life and to finding freedom. Ron Dunn said, a victorious life, listen, is not a superior brand of Christianity reserved for the elite. It is the normal life for every Christian. It isn't bestowed upon some because they are spiritual. It is given to all who are saved and because they are saved. Too many Christians are struggling 
to win a victory that has already been won. It was won 2,000 years ago. End of quote. F.B. Meyer said regarding Galatians 2.20, he said that this is Paul's confession of the power of the cross in his own life. It stood between him and his past. His self-life was nailed down there. And this new life was no longer derived or lived from vain or empty efforts to keep the law. But instead, this new life in Christ, it comes from the indwelling and overflowing life of Jesus Christ. To put it simply before we we move into this, and what I want to do is I just want to get above and look at a bird's eye view of this. And then we'll come back again, like I said, another Sunday, and we're going to nibble away at this. If we could categorize the entire world, and we can even more specifically categorize right here, we're in one of two categories. Everyone in here would fall into one of two. We can say it a lot of different ways. You're either saved or you need to be saved. You either have Christ as your Savior or you need Christ to be your Savior. You are either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. These are all saying the same thing. The Bible puts it, you're either dead in your sins or you are alive to God in Christ Jesus because of salvation. Which are you? Where would you be? The most religious man perhaps in the day of Jesus would have been one that was found in John chapter 3. His name was Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. A very religious man, a very respected man. But he's a man who had a searching in his soul. And the truth of the matter is, every one of us are born into this world with a hole in our soul that only Jesus Christ could fill. And what we do in this life is try to fill that vacuum with things whether it's a relationship, whether it's a title, whether it's position or status, whether it's hobby, recreation, whether it's occupation, something we're trying to put into that vacuum, that emptiness on the inside. But it's not something that you need, it's someone. And when Nicodemus, the most religious man, the most respected man, he came to Jesus at night and he gave Jesus a compliment. He said, no man can do the things that you do except you have God all over you. You must be of God. And a religious man is talking to God in the flesh and he compliments him about his religiosity. He compliments him about his, there's no doubt, you're from God. You're involved in the work of God. And Jesus Christ, the God-man, he turned to Nicodemus 
a lost religious man, and he said to Nicodemus, by the way, he didn't even say thank you. Nicodemus paid him a great compliment. No man can do those things that you do except God be with you. And Jesus didn't say thank you. Jesus looked at him in the eyes and said, you must be born again. Listen, when Jesus demands that you be born again, you must be born again. I was preaching in Athens years ago, and I preached on that very thought, you must be born again, what every man needs, and that is to be born again. A woman got up, walked out, and, and she said at the conclusion, she said, I didn't really have much of a problem with what he was saying except one thing. He said, you must be born again. Well, I didn't say it. Jesus did. I just quoted what he said. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, the most religious man, you must be born again. He said, you'll not see heaven. You'll not enter heaven unless you're born again. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Being born again is not joining a church. It's not going through religious activity. It is not catechism, confirmation, or communion. It's not getting baptized. It's not sitting in church. It's not listening to a loudmouth preacher. No, being born again is when you come to the conclusion that sin is your problem. That's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he had to go through what he went through because sin is our problem. No one could take care of the sin problem except the Savior, the Son of God. And when you realize sin is the problem, hell's my consequence, Jesus is the answer. I don't want my sin. Don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. And you cry out to God, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, like 13 did last night there in the war room. When you call upon the name of the Lord, he does exactly what he said he would do. He does exactly what he came to do. He reaches down into the heart of man, that sinful, dead heart, and he forgives and washes away and makes a man new in Jesus Christ. So the question is, do you have him? You either have Christ as your savior or you need him. You say, I've prayed many prayers. Praying is talking to God. James chapter two says that the devils talk to God, but they're not going to heaven. Saying the Lord's Prayer. I remember every Friday night football game when I was in high school, we'd recite the Lord's Prayer. But I don't think anybody hallowed the name of God Friday night there on that football field. We'd recite that prayer. And then the very same ones reciting it would take the name of that God and throw his name through the air as if his name were a curse word. You can pray a prayer. A prayer doesn't save you. Only Jesus will. And what we need to recognize is we either have him as our savior. You say, preacher, I'm not making the decision. Every moment you live not making the decision, you've made the decision. If the, the, the bride and the groom-to-be stand at the altar and the preacher says, will you take this one? And they say, give me a minute. Not ready to make a decision. And an hour goes by. And the guests decide, we got more important things to do. We'll leave. 
and the night goes by and another day goes by and still no decision having been made. Let me tell you, a decision was made. And you have the luxury of making the decision. You're not forced. This is not forced upon you, but no one has the luxury of not making the decision. Every breath you take, every second you live, you have made a decision to either be in Christ or reject Christ. Now, the one thing about this matter of being born again is that it's not religion, it's a relationship. And what I mean by that, among several other things, is it's not something you have to decide over and over. June 7th, 1997, I said I do, my wife said I do, and I've not had to do it again since because it worked. When Jesus died, was buried, resurrected, he'll never have to do it again because it worked. And all you have to do is to take the gift of salvation, which is not something you do, but it's someone that you receive. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he wasn't telling Nicodemus what he had to do. He was telling Nicodemus what he had to decide because he couldn't do something with his heart. And in fact, Nicodemus thought this, and he asked Jesus, how can a full-grown man when he is old be born another time? He said, shall I get back into my mother's womb and be born? And Jesus explained, that which is of the flesh is flesh, but that which is of the spirit is spirit. And he says, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. In other words, you were born into this world one time. No matter how many times you blow it in this life, you'll never have to go back into your mother's womb, be born another time. You'll never have to go back and get another birth certificate to get a do-over in this life. No, you were born physically, and that's never going to be undone, nor can you change that. And just as certain as you were born into this world physically, you must have a certainty that you've been birthed into God's family spiritually. How does that happen? Well, when does a person get married? When they get married. When does a person get put into God's family, have sins forgiven, receive eternal life? When they recognize sin is the problem, hell's consequence, Jesus is the answer. I don't want my sin. I don't want to go to hell. I need Jesus. And you say I do to Jesus Christ. You place your faith and trust and dependence only upon him. So there's only two categories of people in this room. Those who have Christ and those who need to take Christ to be their savior. And then once you get saved, once you become in Christ, once you become one of God's children. Then we can maybe break it down into there's only two categories of saved people. You know, just like it would be, there are only two categories. We can do this with a lot of things. Only two categories of when it comes to being married, those who are married and those who are not married. And then when a person becomes married, we can say there are two categories here. Those who are happily married and those who are married. Once you become a child of God, there are two categories. Those who simply have Christ and those who are experiencing Christ. 
And Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I believe, is one of those great helps to get us an understanding as to how we can experience the very one who came to die for us, was buried and resurrected, and his listening for whosoever that would call upon him so that he would save their soul and move into their life. And when he moves into your life, he doesn't just want you to have him, he wants you to experience him. This passage, I'm going to give you three things here. It gives us three dimensions of the victorious life. It's the, re, the relinquished life. And I'm sorry, I changed gears on Brother Cherry, so he's not going to have slides for this. And um, so you're, I know some of you are, are up a creek here on trying to spell certain words. I will spell them for you the best I can. The relinquished life. T-H-E. The. Just put a big R for the next one. We'll move on. The relinquished life. Look at it in verse number 20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. See, this teaching here that Paul is giving to us, and, and we're gonna, we've already looked at it in its context, and we'll do this again. We're going to keep bringing the context into it later on. And this morning, I want us to look at the little bit of the content of it, and then we're going to deal with the challenge along the way over the next several weeks. But this teaching is designed to show us how we can enter into that, the life that we have as a Christian how we can experience that life, how we can experience the victory. See, Paul is sharing a truth that when Jesus hung on the cross, that not only were our sins placed upon him, that he might pay the penalty for them in his death, but that, and this is what we talked about last week, that we also were placed in him so that when he died to this world, we also died to this world with him. What happened to Christ literally? Paul is saying, what happened to Christ literally? When you and I get saved, if that's happened, if it's not happened, then you need to get saved. You say, well, this is fuzzy. Well, you know, in a lot of places they'll ask, do you have the vaccination? Do you not have the vaccination? It's kind of that simple, somewhat scary, but that simple. Do you have Christ? Do you not have Christ? When you have Christ, he is telling us that what happened to Christ literally on the cross is what happened to us spiritually. In other words, when I got saved in 1982, I died. I actually died. And do you know that means that I died about 1,900 years, 2,000 years before I was born? You say, I don't understand any of this. What he's telling us when he says, I am crucified with Christ, he's saying that Christ's death paid the penalty for my sin. That's why I don't ever worry about going to hell now. 
Why? Because Jesus can't go to hell. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. I'm in his family. Wherever he goes, I go. He's responsible for me. But his death also paved the way for my life in this world. And so this victorious Christian living, it's about this matter of death. You say, well, that's gloomy. No, that's where life comes from. Jesus died because if he didn't die, he could not have been resurrected. If he were not resurrected, you and I could not have life. And so what happened to him 2,000 years ago, when you and I get saved, we are becoming engrafted. We are becoming tied into that reality, spiritually speaking. What's the big deal? The big deal is you don't have to die. You don't have to be buried and resurrected for your sins and for the victory that's in Jesus Christ. There was a book I read years ago entitled, They Found the Secret written by Raymond Edmond. And he's giving about 20 people whose lives were changed because they found out the secret. And it's not designed to be a secret, but it's a secret because, again, the devil corrupts the simplicity in Christ and a lot of Christianity will focus on the how-tos, the self-helps, and such a shallow presentation of the Christian life that does so much to emphasize you do the best you can. Well, listen, in world religion, we hear that. Do the best you can. You live the best way you know how. You be a good person. You keep the golden rule, the Ten Commandments. You, you, do, you do all those things. Listen, the Bible says you'll die and go to hell if you depend upon you to do the best you can to get yourself to heaven. But when a person gets saved, we've been given this same philosophy. You do the best you can. Now listen, if you're a human, you ought to have some decency and, and being a good citizen. And, but this is not how you get to victory by doing the best you can. He died, was buried and resurrected so that you don't have to put your confidence in you doing the best you can. You can put your confidence and the best that heaven has to offer you. And so Raymond Edmund in the book, They Found the Secret, he mentions many different ones, and they describe this kind of life, victory, that Paul's talking about in Galatians 2.20. They describe it different. You may recognize some of these names. Oswald Chambers. He called it the highest life. See, when we talk about discipleship, he would call it, the highest life. Andrew Murray called it the abiding life. Amy Carmichael, she called it the radiant life. Charles Finney called it the powerful life. D.L. Moody called it the dynamic life. Others referred to it as the victorious life. Some called it the burning life. Some called it the unchained life. Others refer to it as the overflowing life or the satisfying life. Let me ask you, anything there sound like something you might want? The terms and details may vary. And we, but we discover if you read through these lives of these people, 
you read through the Apostle Paul and his writings, you're going to discover a pattern that you begin to see. A pattern emerges that reveals their secret. Here's the pattern. Somewhere, somehow they get discouraged. Somewhere, somehow defeat sets in. And out of discouragement and defeat, they come to this place of victory. The highest life, the radiant life, the overflowing life. Out of weakness and weariness, they're made strong. Out of ineffectiveness and apparent uselessness, they become efficient, enthusiastic. The pattern seems to be self, self-centeredness. Hey, listen, even people coming to church, coming to God, looking for salvation, much of the time it's just self. I don't want to go to hell. And nobody would if you ever read what the Bible has to say about hell. Where the fire is not quenched. Uh, that's not your average Friday night party. I don't want to go to hell. <clears throat> Give me that ticket. It's not a ticket to keep you out of hell. There are people, I've talked to people who got the vaccine, not because of the fear of a virus. By the way, it's just a virus. People have gotten the vaccine just so that they could take a cruise. <clears throat> people have taken the vaccine so that they could go shop. <clears throat> Gives you an idea what would happen if they were, they're going to be around during the tribulation period. <clears throat> Jesus is not a vaccine just to keep you out of hell. But that's how people look at it. That's how it's been presented. You don't want to go to hell, do you? know? I don't want to go to hell. Then why don't you trust Christ? Okay, I'll trust Christ. Now what does the Jesus who saves you say to do? Well, he says, follow him. Well, I didn't sign up for that. That's like the person who signs up for the Marine Corps, only to get the nice uniform. And it is a nice looking uniform. But I think there's a little bit more involved. But we do that because it's really about self. I just didn't want to go to hell. I don't want to give God, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to do this. I, I'm, 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 I came to church this morning. What more should he expect? Like God is in heaven going, hey, well, that's a good job. Good job. I'm telling you, we are so saturated with self. You want to know how they got to freedom, how Paul got to freedom? You want to understand why they call it the radiant life, the powerful life, the dynamic life, the joyful life, the satisfying life, the overflowing life, the burning life, the victorious life? Because they realized all of my life has been about self. And when self is the center, then it becomes about self-effort. Are you saved? I'm doing the best I can. Self-effort. Christian, are you right with God? Doing the best I can. Self-effort. And when self-centeredness is the pattern, self-effort's the pattern, then there becomes an increasing inner dissatisfaction. And there becomes an outer discouragement. And then there's a temptation to give it all up because there seems to be no better way. I'm doing the best that I can and I'm still empty on the inside. Ah, you're getting closer. 
And then finding that the Spirit of God is the one who's been given to us to be our strength and our guide and our confidence and our companion. In in another word, the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ is given not to prop us up so that we can pamper self. No, Jesus has been given to us. He came to us. He's called us so that he could be our life. That means that we have to come to the old rugged cross and deeply moved. We turn aside from the kind of life we once lived and we take our stand beneath the cross of Jesus. We die to our old self. We die to our sin. We die to the world. We identify with him. That's what I mean by we relinquish. When, when I got saved... I didn't understand this as a young boy at the age of eight, nine. I didn't understand what was happening. All I knew was if I died at that moment, I would not go to heaven. I didn't want to go to hell. That's all I knew. But as I was presented the manual from my Savior, from the Word of God, what He expected and what He instructed, and I began to recognize He has more in store for me other than just heaven. By the way, when God saves a person, He saved 13 last night. Whoever called upon Him, He saved them. He didn't save them to take them to heaven. Last I checked, all 13 are still around here. They're going to get heaven someday. But he saved them to bring them to the very purpose that they were created. For him. For him. And that's where a lot of people say, that just sounds miserable. Then my thought is, I don't think you've met him yet. I don't think you've met him. The relinquished life. But then number two, the exchanged life. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, so I've relinquished, I've had to die. And then he says, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives He liveth in me. Do you get that? Paul says, I've died, but I live. I'm dead, but I'm alive. But the emphasis is not upon Paul here. The emphasis is upon Christ literally lives in me. This is one of the things that sets apart Christianity from every other religion. Because when a person gets saved, the founder of Christianity literally moves inside. And he forever lives. He lives in me. It's the exchange life. And what happens is the crisis of this life, the victorious life, the life looking for freedom, it deepens and it begins to unlock this transformation. What, what is this secret? Remember again, the, 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 the secret that these 20 discovered. Well, again, it's been over a billion people who have come to Jesus Christ in the last 2,000 years. 
But only one person has ever lived the Christian life, and that is Jesus Christ. Only one person who can live the Christian life is Jesus Christ. The average Christian knows far more about how to become a Christian than being one. Because it requires an exchange. What is the exchanged life? It's not something again. It's someone. It's a life with a capital L. It's the indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ made real to us by the Holy Spirit. It's new life in exchange for that old life that I once had. It is rejoicing for days of weariness. It is radiance for the days of dreariness that I've known without him. It is strength in areas of my weakness. All kinds of adjectives can be multiplied to describe it. I've already mentioned abundant, overflowing, overcoming, all-pervading, satisfying, joyous, victorious. And each one describes only one aspect of this life with a capital L because it's not just something, it's someone. Jesus said it this way, I have come that you might have life. That's what will take you to heaven. But he says, until you get there, that you might have life more abundantly. We find newness of life, salvation, when we come to Jesus. But we find abundance of that life by surrendering to him, submitting ourselves to him. See, there is life. Are you saved? If you're saved, he says, I have more abundance of living in store for you. That's not just having Christ as your Savior. That is experiencing him. How does that happen? By exchanging. I think J. Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, was the first to use that phrase, the exchange life. And he says, out of my striving and struggling as a Christian, out of discouragement and defeat, he came to the realization of life that is more abundant in Christ. In other words, Hudson Taylor, he's a missionary, he's a Christian, and he says, I would fast, and I found myself more defeated. I'd read more of the Bible, and I'd find myself more discouraged. I'd find myself involved in more evangelistic efforts to give the gospel, and I seem to have more setbacks. So what he's saying is the more religiosity, the more I would fast and pray, the more the Bible I'd read, the more I'd engage in ministry and service. He said the more I experienced defeat and failure and discouragement and disheartment, and he said I came to a point of saying I can't do it. And that's when God says, now we can get somewhere. See, the idea is this. None of us can ever, none of us can ever live the Christian life in our own strength and power. None of us. None of us can resist temptation by our own willpower and determination. None of us. None of us can love as we should love just by our own efforts. 
Only Jesus can successfully live the genuine, victorious, exchanged Christian life in us. After all, it's his life. And when we come to him in full surrender, he invades us by his Holy Spirit and he begins living his life through us. Now here's some things that may help that you may need to know to make this secret known through my life. One is, when you get saved, you are no longer who you used to be. You're not. The very moment that those 13 put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them last night, the Bible says they were immediately made brand new. They may have looked the same on the outside. They may have smelt the same. And some smelt pretty, um, pretty funny last night. And uh, they had worked up quite a sweat outside. And, and those things may not have changed on the outside. But Jesus said where it really makes a difference is on the inside. And immediately everything was made new. I'm no longer who I used to be. Here's another truth. Christ is no longer where he used to be. Before I was saved, he was on the outside of me. When I got saved, he moved to the inside of me. Here's another truth. I can no longer think how I used to think because I am forever married to him. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I, but it's Christ. Do you know who makes the best Christians? Dead people. Dead people make the best Christians. Too many of us were still alive. That's why we hear your gossiping and whining and complaining and murmuring and unbelief and criticism and because you're not dead. Positionally, if you're saved, but experientially, no, you're alive and well and like a baby screaming and crying. Look, look at your goals. Study your daily agendas. Even listen to your prayers. You'll find that many of us are still at the center of it all. We're very much alive in ourselves. Before we can be wed to Jesus, we must understand and recognize we're dead. We must attend our own funeral before we're ready to be the bride of Christ. God wants to do a work in our life. God wants you to experience transformation and find and discover genuine freedom and liberty in Him. So it starts with the relinquishing life. I'm dead. I don't feel like it, but positionally I am. And so I'm going to accept that. And then I'm going to exchange my life of doing the best I can to depending upon Christ, who is the very best that we can ever discover. Instead of me trying to grip my teeth and willpower and try to be the best and be all that I can be like the army slogan, I'm going to depend upon the one that God says is the very best and let his life be lived through mine. And then one last factor here. Notice this, number three. Then it's the relinquishing life, the exchange life. Number three, the trusting life. 
And he says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he's telling us, how does all this happen? By faith. How does a person truly get saved? By faith. No, no, there's something else you have to do. No, there's not. He did it all. Just faith. It, it, it's not your faith in your faith. It is simply you choosing to put your dependence upon Christ. You exercise faith all the time. All the time. You get upon a plane whose pilot you don't know. You'll turn on your vehicle and ride down the road and put confidence in a vehicle you don't quite understand. William Penn, the founder, the Quaker founder of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania was on good terms with the Indians. And one day he entered into this bargain with the Indians and they said you can have as much land as you can walk around in one day's journey. So he set out early one morning by foot and at the end of a long day and into the evening, he came to the Indians and he met the Indians with a quizzical smile. The Indians looked at William Penn and said, Paleface has walked a long ways. But the land which he walked by foot and circled is what we know today to be the city of Philadelphia. You know what William Penn did? By faith, he took those Indians at their word. And faith is simply appropriating and making mine what he has offered. If you sit here in church, but you've never gotten into Christ, he says this morning, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And by faith, you can appropriate and make that yours. Christian, maybe it's still fuzzy and foggy in your mind because you've lived for so long trying to do the best you can to get God's favor and power. And God wants you to see that that's not how a person gets saved. And that's not how you live the victorious life. No, that's how you get saved. Or rather you get saved by putting your dependence upon the Savior. And you can go into living your Christian life in bondage. Until you realize that the way you got saved is the way you live the Christian life. By faith. And so the decision is ours. The reason why I give an invitation is because God still gives them. Amen. Draw near to me. Amen. God says, now I'll draw near to you. Let's stand together, please. Heads bowed, eyes closed.